Thanks for joining us here today at the Australia Indonesia Centre and our In Conversation webinar about data and what we are learning about its value in this strange and unsettling time of coronavirus. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I'm standing, the Kulin Nations. It's also the land on which the AIC's office is located and from where our panellist, Dr Campbell Wilson, is joining us from. We pay our respects to elders past, present and future. Now, as you know, the centre's mission is to build on the links between Indonesia and Australia. And one of the important ways we do this is by bringing researchers, industry, civil society and governments together to discuss some of the important issues that we are grappling with, to learn about the challenges, the successes and see where we can work together to have a stronger partnership in the region. And it's great that you could join us for this particular conversation. It's a bit geeky, it's about data, but data rules everything. And uh, we don't need to be afraid of it, as we're going to find out. There are some ways we can use it better, and there are some ways we can, we can maintain people's privacy in the use of it as well. But hey, is that necessary in this day and age? Let's find out. We've got three great guest speakers to help us with this conversation. Now, we are inviting questions. The chat function is off for the time being, but we will have that open for you uh, in about, say, 20 minutes' time. And thanks to those who've already sent through some questions, um, we'll pop those up on screen and have our guests answer them as well. Now, just to set the scene, so to speak, uh, one of the things that the coronavirus pandemic has taught us is the value of accurate data and good science. But making those elements the priority does not always work in our human world. So we're going to hear what's being done to collect and analyse data and put that into uh, some context around how that data is then being read out to the public, what messages are being given about it. We're going to look particularly at what's happening in Indonesia because there's so much interest in the numbers around coronavirus there. And uh, all these issues are ones that our fabulous three guests are going to guide us on. And we're absolutely delighted to have them with us today. I'm going to get some opening comments from each of them just to help you also understand where they're coming from. And to start off, uh, I'd like to invite Alina Chiptadi to speak first. She's the co-founder of COALCOVID19.id. That's a pro-data movement to provide Indonesians with accurate information on how to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Alina, so lovely to have you with us. I'm a big fan of your work, I have to say, you and your team with the work that you do on elections. But this is a very different situation now. Can you just explain a little of what you're doing? Yes, um, thank you for the opportunity, um, Helen. And um, well, from Singapore, good morning to everybody. Um, um, in this online space. Um, yeah, so a little bit about Kawal COVID-19. Um, so uh, the people, the core team of Kawal COVID-19 is the same people from Kawal Pamilu. So from 2014, so we are a group of pro-data um, people who was like united with the same purpose, you know, under a common purpose, which was to give uh, people access to data uh, when uh, to election data. So, so we work in tandem with the election agency. In we did a parallel count of the presidential election uh, votes. So this was 2014 and 2019, and we all do this in our free time. So each one of us is um, has a day job to do, and we do this on top of our daily responsibilities. So. But we became friends over the course of the five uh, years or so. And as data worms, as we call ourselves, um, we've been monitoring the data for COVID-19 uh, since it, it first broke out in China. So, kind of, so we started in January just for our own use, just because we were interested in the data of how it spread um, and you know, what was it. You know, we were reading kind of um, journals and research articles. And we collected quite a wealth of knowledge just based on the available data in China and then starting in a number of different countries that experienced the pandemic before Indonesia. So 
in February, uh, after monitoring the data for a while, we realized that every single country was going to get affected. Indonesia, um, not the exception. And what we saw in Indonesia in February was um, a number of government op officials made public comments that downplayed the risk of the pandemic, saying that it's not here, you know, kind of we're protected, we're a tropical country, it's going to be fine, it's just flu. So, and we were really concerned because we, people in Indonesia have the same access of information that we do because we use only publicly available data. And if based on those data, um, kind of, we felt like Indonesia is going to be affected in a big way and people are not seeing it because the government is not communicating the risk um, out there, then somebody needed to step in. So despite a lack of knowledge in public health epidemiology whatsoever, then we decided to sort of like recruit a number of medical volunteers, people, medical researchers uh, into our team. And then we launched on the, on the 1st of March. And this was about two and a half weeks before the government um, launched the, gov uh, the government website uh, for COVID nationally. So we felt that we had to step in because there's a lack of, of information leadership from the government. Um, and essentially, um, that's what we do. Uh, we do, um, we still do daily kind of update of number of cases, where they are, um, testing rate, positivity rate. Uh, we try, at least on a weekly basis, try to make the numbers make sense for people who don't deal with data on a daily basis the way we do. Um, and uh, the data that we use, we also create kind of um, white paper uh, proposals on policy changes for the government. Um, you know, bits and pieces have been accommodated and some others uh, were still working on it, but um, that's where we are at the moment. We have, uh, and increasingly we work with local governments as well in at provincial or city level to try to influence policy to, to make it more data-based instead of um, economic or kind of, you know, fast reopening base. And that's essentially what we do. And uh, I believe I'll get a chance to explain more when the questions come. Thank you, Helen. All right, our pleasure. Thank you. Now I'd like to introduce to you Dr. Campbell Wilson, the Senior Lecturer and Associate Dean International at the Faculty of Information Technology at Monash University, one of our founding um, partner universities. In fact, his expertise encompasses machine learning, information retrieval and digital forensics. And Dr. Wilson, great to have you on board as well. I guess, you know, this time of coronavirus, it's quite challenging and frightening in many ways, but for someone who loves extracting information and learning from it, it must be an incredibly interesting time for you as well. Absolutely, Helen, and, and thank you um, for the opportunity to participate and thank you to the Australia Indonesia Centre to um, for organizing this, what I think will be a really interesting discussion with colleagues from Indonesia. I guess I'm coming at this from a slightly different angle. I'm not necessarily working with COVID-19 um, data on the ground as, uh, as Elena definitely is. Um, but I do work with data, as you said, um, quite extensively. So I work in the faculty of IT at Monash University and my background is um, applied maths and computer science. Um, my current area of research is um, applying artificial intelligence and machine learning um, specifically to problems of community safety and, and, um, and also how AI can be used in law enforcement. Um, and to that end, I'm co-directing a research lab that's a collaboration between Monash University and the Australian Federal Police. Um, and the, the core mission of that lab is really to... Um, to do R&D and AI that can be used um, to address serious crime. Um, and in particular, we've had quite a focus on technology uh, that can automatically or, or semi-automatically um, classify distressing and illegal images that are distributed online. Um, but more broadly, we're also very interested in exploring what, um, what the explainability of algorithms means in a law enforcement context and how that can be achieved. Um, for instance, the use of um, 
machine learning is is sometimes very opaque it's hard it's hard to explain what the algorithm is doing and how it's making its decisions and you could probably understand that in a law enforcement context those decisions have um, quite quite serious potential ramifications so it's important to to explain um, how those algorithms work and and more importantly and I think you picked up on it in your introduction I think in this time in this in this pandemic it's probably very important to, to explain how data is used and any algorithms that are operating on that that data how they actually work um, so I'm particularly interested in that I'm also interested in um, the the ethics I guess of data use in all its dimensions um, particularly in the context of community safety, but, but definitely more, um, more broadly in, in, in COVID-19. So, so that's, I guess, where I'm coming from. Um, and I'm very much looking forward to the discussion today. Can we call you a data worm, Campbell? I think that's the term Alina used. I love that term. <laughs> very happy to be called a data worm <laughs> i love learning a new phrase um all right deal i'd like to now introduce our third panelist petra carecci the head of the un global pulse lab in jakarta now this lab is at the forefront of developing systems that use data to help limit the spread of COVID-19. And generally, they've been doing lots of amazing work with other partners throughout the world on using data for better humanitarian outcomes, particularly when it comes to a disaster zone. We'll obviously learn more about that, but uh, Petra, lovely to have you with us today. Tell us a bit more about what you're doing in Jakarta at the moment. Thank you, Helen, and thank, thanks for the introduction. I, 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 I really would hesitate in saying we're at the forefront with data on COVID-19, but um, uh, what we are trying to do uh, based on our mandate, where uh, PulseLab Jakarta was established in um, 2012, uh, looking at where uh, emerging or alternative data sources uh, could be utilized uh, by government uh, for public policies. And so uh, our work has been in looking at how uh, the, how we can utilize or better utilize uh, new or emerging data sources, but um, and our experience is showing that it's it's the the, the utility or the usefulness and uh, validity of our analysis utilizing uh, what what we commonly call uh, big data is when it's in com combination with traditional or um, existing data sets ga uh, gathered by government and um, also. Um, with what what they call a uh, thick data, which is based on experience experiences of of uh, communities and uh, citizens. So, um, in answer to your your question, what what we're doing at the moment is uh, looking at um, how we can then co combine data sets uh, with regard to uh, COVID nineteen. Um, where at the outset of uh, COVID nineteen in, in 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 Indonesia, we thought we'd, we'd do a bit of a baseline and 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 see what, how are local governments reporting on COVID-19? Um, because uh, we feel this is very important to uh, uh, build uh, public trust in what the government is doing. And then, uh, so when there are new policies, uh, 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 citizens are more likely to uh, adhere to the, the regulations and, and the policies. But uh, what we found is that out of the uh, 34 provinces, Originally, only 30, um, at, at that time, we, we only found 30 provinces that were really reporting that, uh, with uh, consolidated down to the district level. And uh, what we're now seeing is that this, this number is actually dropping. Uh, uh, so our, our latest data is that we have uh, only 22 provinces that are properly reporting on COVID-19 publicly, that is, uh, uh, with data also collated from, uh, from the districts. Um, what we also did was uh, looking at uh, provinces where there is actually a, a strong data infrastructure or ecosystem. And so we've been collaborating with the West Java uh, government, provincial government, which we're, we've been very grateful to have this uh, uh, collaboration. And uh, here we've been able to combine uh, between uh, uh, traditional data sets such as uh, PODEST, uh, which looks at village potential and highlighting you know, uh, vulnerabilities of villages based on the sanitation uh, the, the level of sanitation in the villages, and then comparing that also link, link that uh, to access to uh, medical, uh, excuse me, uh, access to medical supplies and or, or medical services. 
uh, but then combine that with data such as um, uh, mobility data, uh, which Java is using Waze data, and also combining this with Facebook data and looking at um, public de uh, uh, demographies to identify where there are uh, high high risk populations due to the age, uh, age and also to the um, yeah to the level of density in terms of uh, age and 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 their access and their location in terms of access to medical uh, services as well. So, um, but uh, it, it, why we were doing this with West Java is also it shows what can be done or uh, what is possible if there is a strong um, data infrastructure. Uh, but then uh, it helps us to then see or, or, or show to other provinces what really is needed uh, if, if, uh, if uh, da effective data systems can be applied to address uh, issues at hand. So maybe I'll stop there and, and really looking forward to the uh, discussion today. Thank you, Helen. Thanks, Petra. And I'll just pick up on what you were saying about some lack of data in some particular areas. Mm. Alina, is, are you finding that it is difficult to get a true and comprehensive picture of the spread of the virus um, and some ideas of where the weaknesses in the system are? And then Petra, I might just go to you and get your thoughts on those provinces that don't have the capacity perhaps to report. Um, I guess, okay, um, in a lot of areas in Indonesia, testing capacity is very limited and, and the world sees the number um, nationally that we still have one of the lowest testing rates in the world, even when compared to other developing nations. So, and, uh, but some areas like West Sumatra, for example, um, uh, Jakarta or Bali, their testing rate actually meets the WHO requirement. So at least they have the testing capacity within their province. And it's just a matter of bringing the positivity rate down to a point where it would be uh, deemed safe to uh, partially reopen, for example. Um, so not every area in Indonesia is um, equal um, in their handling of the pandemic. Um, uh, West Java, as Petra would probably be able to tell you in greater detail, has not met the WHO requirement for minimum testing rate of one per 100, uh, for 1,000 uh, population per week uh, when it comes to testing. Um, the positivity rate, rate is quite low, but we don't know whether that's because they're under testing or is it because the spread is not um, wide anymore until we get to that testing rate. Um, so, so that's what I can say, um, you know, kind of, we can definitely spotlight um, West Sumatra in their, in, in their uh, attempt to uh, multiply the testing capacity of, their, uh, of, the, of the province. Um, we still don't know the uh, the full insight of what's happening in Bali, but you know the testing rate suggests that the um, you know they have the capacity. Um, they fairly recently uh, were given a PCR uh, machine, so they, their lab probably has capacity. You know, um, Jakarta, as the capital city and the business capital of Indonesia, um, rightfully so, was given a lot of attention and a lot of support to make sure that the uh, positivity rate and testing. Um, gets to where it needs to be to mm -hmm. reopen. Um, however, um, even with a testing rate that is four times the minimum amount uh, required from WHO, the positivity rate is still somewhere between nine and ten percent. Mm -hmm. so, so, which which indicates that um, community transmission in Jakarta is widespread. There's still a lot of cases out there that we don't know most probably asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. Um, and uh, in Jakarta, they don't seem to be um, coupling the, 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 their testing capacity with tracing. So, you know, kind of, kind of testing is only one side of the coin. And, you know, if, if massive tracing and quarantine of people doesn't come into play, then it's just going to be a Tom, uh, Tom and Jerry game of, you know, chasing new infections, but then the new infections keep chasing new people. Mm. Petra, mm -hmm. picking up on that, do, uh, what gaps are you seeing in the infrastructure for the, for the collection or the systemic collection and understanding of data? Okay, thanks, Helen. I, I, well, I think reflecting on the, uh, how the processes is usually in, in uh, when there is a natural disaster because of the sporadic nature, you can actually mm -hmm. fly in 
uh, qualified teams or competent teams to collect the data and, and, and do the assessments on the ground. Now suddenly with COVID-19, the pandemic, the, the scale of the pandemic, uh, pandemic will not, cannot allow, uh, where, where are you going to send people and, and do you have, have those, the resources to send? And so it really is, I, I feel, is highlighting uh, where the, the, the capacity gaps that needs to be built and strengthened at provincial and district level um, and also around the, the actual information infrastructure as well. And so hopefully that we can, uh, we can learn lessons from uh, this process um, uh, and, and actually uh, consistently build this, uh, this capacity so that we are actually have this sort of um, um, a, a stronger resilience uh, uh, for, for future uh, issues. But actually, in, in, even in handling this, this, this current issue at hand, um, I think one, one, one other aspect that uh, we find has been problematic, I guess, is that um, uh, a lot of protocols or, or agreements really need to be in place uh, you know, before uh, um, uh, an, uh, an issue happens. And, um, an example is uh, if we had protocols around uh, mobile, uh, mobile data for, so that uh, operators would um, share the uh, certain mobile data, anonymized of course, but uh, for instance, our, our, to be able to help around uh, uh, tracking um, uh, of, um, of issues and, and just uh, tracking of, of population mobility, that would be uh, incredibly valuable. But as it is in the midst of a pandemic, trying to get the, some of these agreements or protocols happening, it just takes, it, it's, it's just so much harder without being able to meet face to face as well. So uh, these are some of, uh, some of the challenges we're seeing as well, Helen. Mm, thanks, Petra. Campbell, if I can go to you, because I'm curious to know if, if there are gaps in the data, so to speak, how robust is it? How much can it be depended on to tell the story of what's happening? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. Um, if I could just, I guess, step back a little bit, I, I would, I would tend to make a distinction between data, which is really the raw numbers, um, and information, which is derived from that data. Um, and it's the, it's the information that conveys meaning and supports decision and policy making, etc. And that might sound a little pedantic, but um, the distinction is pretty important because there's many, many methods you can use to transform data into usable information. Um, this is kind of, this is what data scientists essentially do. Um, and of course, different information um, can be generated from the same data. Um, none, of, none of that in itself is new. I mean, the field of statistics has been around for an awfully long time, hundreds of years. Um, and computer scientists have been organizing data um, so that it becomes more informative pretty much since the advent of electronic computers, you know, 70 years or so. So I guess to your question, um, whenever you're doing any analysis intended to make the data informative, there's always an issue of data quality. That's the first issue. So there can be a lot of noise in certain types of data. Um, and yes, what the data is representing or the information that it truthfully represents that underlies that, that, that data can certainly be kind of misinterpreted and there can be gaps and even very simple analyses of data can be examples of that. And the classic example, I guess, is, is daily COVID-19 case numbers. And, and certainly that's something um, we're all hanging on in, in Melbourne right now. It's the same in many places. Um, we see these daily briefings. And the thing about that is that, that without sort of moving averages and uncertainty being, um, given in these estimates, day-by-day -day trends are not necessarily very meaningful. And worse than that, there's this kind of massive uncertainty underlying the data that's not really reflected in the, the, the public necessarily understanding what's going on. So, um, and to, to take up Alina's point, I mean, testing obviously is massively important because um, while the number in a given day might be very accurate given the tests that were undertaken, it's obviously much less than the real number of cases present. And the amount of uncertainty as to what percentage of the real case numbers that that represents is potentially huge. Um, and, you know, statisticians are experts at dealing with that uncertainty and understanding those variable factors, but the way that that is presented and, and the way that it's presented to the public is that a lot of that context is often lost. I mean, it's not always easy to present it in that way with that context. Um, but I, th I think this is a really big issue, the way that the data is interpreted and, and, um, certainly there can be gaps that are 
hard to observe. Mm, I think that's a really interesting point and um, we'll get back to that. I have got a question actually from one of our audience members on that. Before I go to it, I, I just wanted to get a picture, Alina, and also from you, Petra, where you're getting your information from because you've mentioned social media, Petra, you mentioned Waze, which is um, an app around mobility. I think, uh, Elena, you even talked about having people attending press conferences to try and get numbers. So, Elena, I'll go to you first just for a quick rundown on where the information is coming from and then to you, Petra. Thank you. Um, we get um, all of the data that we collected is publicly available. So, um, the, so the data may not be uniform province to province simply because they present uh, the data differently. But uh, we go to the government, uh, to the National Task Force uh, website every single day and see the updated numbers. So, uh, so that's our first point of reference. And then every province has uh, a website to, uh, repeat, uh, to, to basically present the data from their own province. And sometimes that uh, data uh, goes granular enough at city level. And that's where we get more information than what is presented nationally. That's where we get kind of, um, kind of uh, the outbreak, uh, the, number, uh, the number of cases per city, the number of people quarantined per city, or you know, how many test tests have been done per city or per province. We get that mostly from the provincial website. And for that, we have to scour information differently. Some of them have websites and they have it you know, kind of nicely presented in graphs and charts or tables. Um, some of them have it as Instagram story and, uh, you know, kind of, so basically we have to take screenshot of that Instagram story before it goes away after 30 seconds. Um, and then we um, manually kind of move the data from their platform onto our spreadsheet. Uh, some of them do a daily or weekly press conference on YouTube and we have to listen to those press conferences and then take note of the data manually and then input that into our system. Um, so yeah, a lot of dedicated volunteers um, go into the collection of the data that we present on social media and also on our website every day. Wow, that's just an amazing effort. <laughs> um, Petra, what, are your, what is your team doing to collect data? Where are they getting it from? Very similar experience, and so uh, what we've been trying to do is uh, to automate it as 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 much as possible. But but it uh, as uh, Ibalina said, it, it it is it's actually impossible. Uh, where uh, there are sites that that allow us to be able to draw uh, data directly, and and that's uh, and um, and it just creates so much efficiencies. But uh, the majority um, uh, data is not uh, easily extractable. Sometimes they they present it as images, for instance, and so you actually have to um, uh, download the image or, or refer to the image and, and manually in, in input the data. So um, just, uh, yeah, but I, I think it, for me, it emphasizes the underlying issues around uh, capacity and, and uh, lack of uniformity around uh, protocols and procedures in presenting this data as well, Helen. Um, so, mm. um, I, so I don't fault the, the official, I think it's, it's actually, um, um, a, a more, more of a system, it reflects a more of a systemic issue underlying um, um, uh, the data that's being uh, presented, Helen. Mm, so you have, you have informal means or social media means by which you can find information. A lot of information from different governments being uploaded on social media. Um, you have statements and so forth and so on. Which then leads to a question that we've got from our audience, and if we could just put that up so that you can read that, because um, this is, of course, around how much is made, how much is private and how much is not. Um, from Ayu Tmangung from Hello Doc, which is a tech startup in the health industry, if I'm not wrong, where's the line between ethical and unethical data mining for COVID? Um, maybe Campbell, you can give us sort of a, a, an academic view on that, and then I'll go to our two other guests to see how they manage that question. Yeah, wow, what a question. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this is the big question, I guess. Um, and, and ethics in, it, in, it, in and of itself is a huge topic. Um, I would say that um, we always have to be um, 
sort of cognizant of the environment that, that we're working in. in a pandemic situation, um, individual privacy sometimes will um, come second to the, to the greater good, the greater public good. So it's actually very, very hard um, to, to draw that line always. Um, just, I guess, from an abstract point of view with ethics, we always like to make sure that we obviously consider um, privacy, um, particularly when that data is, is potentially being used to um, obviously to identify individuals. We'd hope that we wouldn't need to do that um, necessarily. Um, but, but also how the data is going to be used in general. If it's being used to make predictions um, that will affect people's lives, that will affect policy making, I think you need to be able to be completely transparent in, um, in how you're using the data. And I think that's the best, um, the best answer to this, that, that um, as long as there's visibility of how the data is being used, how um, we can say that there are mechanisms in place to ensure that the predictions that are made are kind of made on quality data, that they're fair predictions, that we can explain what's going on. Also that there's some sort of human accountability. There's some point of accountability if something does go wrong or if people have um, have issues that they want to query about the way that the data is used. But it's a, it's a very big question. And I think at the moment people and governments are having to actually make a lot of decisions on the run and make a lot of policy on the run and, um, and yeah, just a lot of, um, <laughs> a lot of issues to consider. Petra, how does this issue come up in your team? Oh, it resonates very much. Um, I, we think it's it's a huge uh, um, issue where we've we've uh, been actively trying to support uh, dialogue or discourse around uh, 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 data protection and, and and data privacy. So we're part of a global um, uh, uh, group that's that's looking at at at, uh, at uh, processes and procedures uh, for this. And so um, I think. It really underlines. Uh, so, aside from uh, before even looking at the ethical and, and unethical uh, aspects of um, uh, use of data in COVID nineteen, we also need uh, the, the the capacity of government to protect and ensure uh, the security of the data is is also part of this um, as well. And and uh, I, I know there was a case uh, of uh, data uh, of of uh, uh, private data being leaked on um, from uh, uh, from one of the municipalities, and so um, I think bounding within that conversation uh, uh, is about the capacity to ensure this data remains secure and and um, uh, yeah uh, and protected. So uh, I, it's it's still something that we really need to grapple with. Helen. Mm. Alina, when you're looking at where you're getting the information from, the data from, do you also look at around whether it has been protected as much as it can be? Um, I would say all the data that uh, that we manage to collect, they're all anonymized. So we don't know who these people are. You know, they come to us as graphs or numbers or tables. Um, there are country, uh, there are provinces or cities that do their tracing well. And there's not a lot of cases per day. So they have the privilege of being able to not so much name, but describe each case. So for example, a 53 year old male who recently traveled to which city was found positive upon arriving at the airport and getting tested. So, um, you know, this person is now in quarantine and, you know, three member of his household has also uh, is also serving quarantine even though their test results haven't come out. So we have seen a record like that. Uh, having said that, the data has always been anonymized. Uh, it doesn't mention kind of it, kind of the locality or where this person lives to a to a degree where we can find that person uh, kind of or find the address. Mm. And I would say that compared to um, seeing the election data, for example, you know, kind of when I was about to vote and I wanted to check my status, whether or not I'm a registered voter already, um, I would say that this time around, there's um, a lot more care into protecting the privacy of the patient, um, especially because there's still a lot of resistance um, on the ground and 
there's still stigma attached to you know kind of COVID-19 and uh, and we want to protect people from uh, the possibility of having to deal with the disease and the psychological effect of it uh, because of you know they're being stigmatized. Um, I think this is a, a tough lesson that the government has learned from the way they announced the first two cases of which they actually mentioned the name and the address of the people and then kind of journalists basically went to their place and then there is kind of like a police tape in front of their house and, and they've, they've moved along, they've moved on uh, well since then in protecting the um, privacy, unless the patient themselves decide to tell their story and um, you know, no longer be anonymous. Mm. The um, and the idea in Indonesia of privacy is it's 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 more loose, I guess, is a word we can use. You know, people aren't thinking about it so much. But the coronavirus has highlighted where that privacy can be breached and cause unnecessary pain or extra pain. Um, Gail, also interested in your comments around the government being thinking more about the information and it getting out. And that comes, do you think they lost trust initially when some of that information came out that shouldn't have, um, Alina and then Petra? And then I'd like to go to Campbell on sort of that wider messaging around trust. Um, there hasn't been any study if kind of the way the government handled the first few cases, announced the first few cases had an effect on people not wanting to get tested or not wanting to get traced or you know reporting themselves even if they did an independent test and was found positive. So um, I couldn't say if there is correlation um, or if one caused the other. Um, but you know kind of but you know it it, it continues to be our hope that uh, uh, the government protect the privacy, uh, the privacy of the patient, and you know, kind of the patient makes the decision of whether or not they want to tell the story. Mm. Petra, using data and and for the reasons that you use it to have better humanitarian responses, mm. trust is so vital in those situations, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, uh, it's it's uh, it's critical, um, and uh, I, I think also. You know, in in what we find in Indonesia, in any given situation, um, uh, there are always elements willing to use uh, news or twist twist the news uh, uh, to their own narrative. And so, I think this is why it's so important for uh, consistent, clear, and transparent reporting um, uh, by the government uh, to counter um, uh, well uh, alternative or, or uh, narratives and. Uh, uh, Using the situation to to show that um, to perhaps say that the government is is kind of cannot be trusted cannot be uh, cannot uh, cannot be and and to ignore some of the what what the government is trying to do and so again I, I feel uh, as Campbell was saying you know it's it's not just the data but the information on, um, that that's that's derived from that uh, data can be can be twisted in in, in different ways and so uh, again I think the the emphasis on Improving uh, the way the data is collected and then presented is, is critical in building as a, as a building block for uh, trust in the state. Campbell, how much responsibility do data scientists have in ensuring that this, this information is understood to be um, ethically collected, transparent, but is being read in the right way as well? So it's not being twisted, so to speak, looking at Petra's example. Yeah, I think uh, Petra makes a really important point. And that, that question of trust is really vitally important now, and in particular now when citizens are being asked and, you know, in many cases compelled um, by governments in the interest of public health to fundamentally alter their lives, um, you know, even to the extent where they might have to give up their, their income, their social interactions, you know, their lives as they know it. So anything that would erode that trust and and, you know, the trust is probably never there completely in the government in the first place, um, but anything that can erode that um, could potentially cause big problems in environments where, um, you know, the fires of social unrest are already being stoked just by the, the restrictions and the situation, the pressure that people are under. So I think data scientists have a huge responsibility in this um, because just as I said, you can make information from data. Of course, you can make misinformation from data. Um, 
it's nothing new that that statistics can be used to present certain agendas um governments politicians everyone um in public life potentially has been accused of using statistics in a way to to push a certain agenda um but I would, I would again echo that the key is probably as much transparency as possible and, um, you know, open sourcing the health data as much as possible, particularly now. Um, but I guess, I guess there are some caveats to that um, in that there are some great organisations, Alina's organisation is an example of this, that, that are essentially, you know, citizen data scientists, um, just as there are citizen journalists and that, 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 People are going in there and analysing the data and, and helping communities using using data, and and that is very useful. But I dare say there are others that that maybe don't curate things as carefully. Um, so there's a kind of a danger in I guess um, moving to a um, some sort of lowest common denominator of data analysis um, and presentation that might be counterproductive. But I don't think any of those potential dangers um, outweigh the benefits of being as transparent as possible uh, with the data and the government's having frank conversations with their communities because ultimately fighting COVID-19, it really is, um, you know, one of the greatest human collaboration efforts that we've ever seen. And we need, we need everyone to work together, governments, um, communities, that everyone's interest is in getting this over as soon as possible. Um, mm -hmm. So again, I think transparency is key to maintaining that that trust. And looking at how this is one of the greatest challenges facing the international community, let alone Australia and Indonesia, but we do have a question around Australia and Indonesia working together on this. From Gentur Adi Utama, the University of Melbourne, what do you think Australia could offer to Indonesia in terms of cooperation in data management and how can we make it work? And I also think Indonesia has something to teach us too around uh, the availability of data and people on their smartphones, for instance. Campbell, if I could put that question to you first, though, and just get some follow-up responses from Alina and Petra, who are there on the ground looking at where the gaps are. Mm -hmm. I suspect one of, the, one of the areas we could cooperate on is infrastructure, um, data infrastructure, um, sort of uh, national, national platforms for data, because obviously a lot of this data will require consolidation um, and analysis at scale. Um, so I suspect that's one of the areas that we could particularly cooperate on. Um, there would certainly be learnings that would go both ways on this. Um, I, I really think that... Um, this, the sort of work that Alina's talking about in, um, in community-centred data analysis and data um, discussions is really important. And Australia mm. could probably learn as much as we could contribute to Indonesia on that. But I would say um, potentially infrastructure is something that, that Australia could, um, could contribute. Right. I'm going to open up the chat box option too. Sorry, I didn't mention that. So feel free to start throwing your questions our way. Alina, I'll get you to follow up next. Yes, um, I think kind of Indonesia is still battling kind of, um, kind of is still trying to improve its testing and tracing capacity. So any collaboration in terms of, you know, in a way that can make kind of testing data um, more easily digestible um, or anything that can help testing uh, capacity uh, in some of the provinces. Um, so that will be uh, an area to explore and also tracing because even where um, testing has met the requirement, the tracing side of it still needs to catch up with it. And, uh, and tracing does involve a lot of data on the ground, probably collected manually, um, but you know, kind of a system where kind of the, the data of people who are being traced and quarantined and monitored um, goes into the same pool. So whoever is on duty, uh, can can find the data easily easily enough to follow up on. Um, so that that will be another another area for um, uh, uh, poss of possibility. Another one not directly related to the pandemic is uh, about bridging the digital gap in Indonesia. Um, as many other countries are experiencing right now, uh, we are having the debate of whether or not to reopen schools and how to reopen schools safely because. Um, 
um, smartphone penetration in Indonesia is only at about 30% right now. So there are still a lot of people don't, who don't have smartphone and probably don't have laptop at home or don't have reliable internet connection at home. And we know that um, remote learning can only work effectively when you have the infrastructure in place and you have the tools in place, um, you know, the minimum being a smartphone. So anything that can uh, bridge the digital gap while school continues to be at home, uh, for example, kind of high-speed internet in, in, in every village or every uh, neighborhood, where uh, kids can come, uh, students can come and log in and um, and do their schooling for a couple of hours and then come come back or kind of you know kind of um, uh, making laptops more readily available. Um, I'm not sure how much of that has been thought of by the uh, Ministry of Education, but um, we 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 haven't seen on the ground um, a, a collective kind of like a national or a collective effort to address the digital gap. So that's that's probably an area to think about as well. Mm. Petra, systems mm. and processes from the sounds of it. Yeah, uh, uh, well, uh, we're very uh, grateful actually that uh, uh, DFAT and CSIRO. Um, uh, uh, we're progressing towards a partnership with uh, with them in and, and so a lot of this is about utilizing uh, uh, tools that uh, CSIRO has already developed or is uh, 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 utilizing uh, uh, where we're able to then uh, adapt uh, based on our knowledge and also our, our uh, networks on the ground in Indonesia um, but at the same time, uh, the prototypes that we've been developing, uh, utilizing uh, alternative data sets in, in combination with existing uh, traditional data sets, uh, then can become uh, platforms where CSIRO is able to support us in then further developing or strengthening the backend side of it and the security aspects where I, I think Australia is very, very strong on, uh, particularly on, on data security and, um, um, and uh, data protection. So uh, that's also uh, another aspect. But I, I was fascinated, if, can I, just a, a bit of a personal twist on this one, um, where uh, I, I grew up in the highlands of uh, West Papua and uh, I was fortunate to be able to get uh, correspondence lessons from New South Wales. So um, I, there's, there's more, you know, on the ground, very practical uh, aspects of collaboration based on the Australian experience as well as Indonesia's experience where, where I think we can uh, we should be able to explore as well not just on the high level techie techie stuff um, so um, just thought I'd, I'd, I'd uh, just based on Elena's response thanks uh, uh, Elena I, I thought yeah uh, there's a lot of things on, on a practical level that could be done as well very true good point yeah and and talking about the practical level slightly different slant though we've been talking about data collection but i'm wondering have there been any restrictions put on getting that information um we have a question from the audience nigel hembra from astronaut with travel restrictions for the coming months and years potentially how are academics collecting data from the field now i know at the australia indonesia center we're going to our people in the field, but they're not traveling around. They're, I guess, securing data and information wherever they can on the projects that they're working with. But uh, Alina and Petra, has it been harder to get information because of the coronavirus? Or is it a, is it a different situation that people are allowed to travel around? And then Campbell, um, what do you do if you're an academic and you can't be there face to face as the primary, finding the primary source of information? Elena. Um, yes, a lot of uh, a lot of activities or events in Indonesia that touch on the necessity of data and going on ground uh, to people are actually happening concurrently. Um, Indonesia is still in the midst of a, a national census, for example. Um, there are regional elections coming up in November or December, um, including in Petra's hometown. <laughs> and uh, and and then at the same time, you know, kind of, um, you know, kind of immunization, uh, vaccination uh, program nationally, it needs to continue, or kind of uh, blood donor program, it needs to continue nationally, especially this time around when people are more scared of um, 
of donating their blood, for example. And so kind of the, the Indonesian Red Cross is tasked with, um, you know, kind of being more proactive in going on ground. Um, so yes, and a lot of that, um, a lot of that has been a challenge because um, especially outside of the urban centers, people still have to knock on doors. And it's a matter of how do we equip them to be able to do that safely? And how do we uh, minimize the risk of resistance? People not wanting to open the door because they're afraid of contamination or things like that, or thinking that everybody knocking on their door is somebody wanting to test and trace and then take them away to quarantine center. Um, mm. So there is that resistance on the ground. Uh, and so, and you know, kind of, I, I have all my respect for people working in local government clinics. Um, very limited resources, and they're trying to do everything they can to make sure that vaccination still continues, uh, to make sure that um, you know they still monitor people who are on home quarantines, even if by phone, uh, because not many people have um, in some areas. Not many people do have smartphones, and uh, so yeah, that's that's the realities um, on the ground for um, a lot of us in Indonesia. Thanks, Elena. That's great insight. Petra, have you found that your research and as you go out trying to learn more about what's going on has been hampered at all just by the, the fact of what coronavirus is? Um, hugely hampered. And uh, I, I also want to acknowledge um, work undertaken by a, a number of civil society organizations, um, um, uh, including, uh, for instance, Copernic in Bali, um, uh, Tulodo, I think, um, uh, and uh, yeah, yeah uh, who are um, also undertaking um, doing this sort of work uh, uh, in terms of, uh, and their technique is usually through um, uh, telephone uh, surveys at this point. But again, um, it doesn't quite then cover the representation aspect, and of course, it's it's a very uh, expensive and. Um, um, uh, onerous um, process to, to, to go through. Um, so what we're also excited is in looking at uh, whether there are alternative ways to be able to analyze, for instance, economic activity utilizing satellite imagery. Um, this is something CSIRO is, is uh, we'll, we'll be looking at uh, with CSIRO, um, uh, Data61. And so um, again, whether there are alternative uh, sets, uh, I think it's what, what uh, Campbell was saying before as well. There's a lot of data. How can we then use that data to then create um, information sets or, 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 or bring out uh, particular analytics that can help us inform, uh, even though that data, uh, the data wasn't specifically uh, created for that, that, that particular use. Um, but, uh, so that's one aspect that uh, we do a lot in, in Pulse Lab Jakarta is um, trying to look at data and see what other information we can actually uh, derive from from the data from uh, existing data sets as well, or, or um, uh, for instance, for, uh, coming out of social media. Mm. Campbell, I um, am almost afraid to envisage the amount of data that you would have to work with. But how do you collect it? How do you know where to go and what to look for in this sort of environment? Um, well. I don't do sort of field work, I guess, uh, and I would defer to you and to Petra and Alina on, on those sorts of um, collection questions. The sort of data that, that we're dealing with, for instance, in the, the lab that we have with the AFP, um, it's almost data that you wish you had less of. <laughs> um, and it's unfortunately the case that during COVID-19, um, uh, certain types of crime without going into detail, uh, very distressing crimes are on the increase and um, there is no shortage, unfortunately, of data um, that we would need to deal with. So I guess I'm affected in a slightly different way in terms of the mm. research that, that I'm involved in. And as I said, we probably would <laughs> be one of the areas that we wish we had a bit less yes. data. And just to be clear, are you working with Indonesia in that in that, that AFP laboratory, so to speak? Are you working with international partners? So, um, so we're a collaboration with the Australian Federal Police, and the AFP, of course, is um, tasked with um, investigating transnational 
serious crimes. So they certainly have a big network of partners. Um, we at Monash also have a very big network of partners um, and sometimes those networks uh, do coincide and, and we work directly with, for instance, international law enforcement agencies around the world. Um, so what we, what we try to do is, um, given, given that this has to be a collaborative effort, the sorts of um, crimes, encountering the sort of crimes that we're interested in addressing uh, has to be transnational. We, we do work with a lot of, a lot of partners. Um, the interesting thing about that is that there's, of course, um, a lot of different local jurisdictional um, constraints um, in different areas that mean that you can't necessarily move data around between all those different areas very easily. Um, there's a whole lot of legislative um, requirements around that. And there's also a lot of ethical requirements um, or constraints that, that mean that we don't want to move too much data around um, that relates to, to individuals, even if they're not identified, it's in some sense reusing that, um, that, that data. So there's a really interesting sort of set of constraints, but yes, we do work. Thank you. Yeah. Slightly off topic, but I just think that collaborative idea and restrictions or possibilities around that was worth raising. Now we've almost uh, finished up our time, unfortunately. So I'm going to pose one last question to our panelists and only going to give you uh, 30 seconds to answer just so that we don't go over. But we've been talking a lot about collecting data, how it's used, the messages it sends out to the public. And as we've discussed, it's very ha helpful having this data, but also how it's read is so important as well. And do you think that the current pandemic um, is shifting people's minds about the value of good data? And if not, what needs to be done or what can be done to encourage more trust around you know using the numbers to understand what's going on um petra can i start with you first please because i know this is one of your areas of interest okay sorry so um, that's, okay. that's a very loaded question that's a very loaded question i think uh uh helen so <laughs> sorry. um uh, and uh, i've actually if I can... just lost if, yeah, if I can put you, uh, I'm, you know, I'm actually referring to something that you, you said to me, so I'll be fair and tell you what that was. <laughs> we need to start with small actionable items that build momentum in trust with working together. The yeah. problem is that this happens with large complex issues and that takes time. Yeah. Well, but, and that's uh, what you're facing. That, that's exactly what we're facing. And um, I think, uh, has it actually changed the perception? It, um, that perception is being formed as we go by the level of accuracy, the level of transparency, um, uh, the, and, and the way data is being used. So uh, if it's used well, and if it's presented well, then uh, it will increase the trust and, and the way uh, people will use data moving forward. But uh, there's also the risk of, of, of it going the other way. Um, so I think it's it's a challenge we, we um, and why I think our work is is critical is in helping to present that data well um, and and the information derived and uh, the analysis derived from that data. Okay, thank you, Elena. A short answer from you, if you don't mind. Yes, I second what Petra said um, that you know we start small and with Kawal COVID we start by um, informing the uh, presenting the data uh, in kind of sizable chunks that is easy enough for people to understand. So in improving data literacy, essentially. And as uh, more and more people are um, data literate, um, and um, they understand that they have the right to get this information from the government. It's actually enshrined in our laws that you know, when it comes to crisis, um, kind of um, urgent situations, people have the right to get this data from the government. And as more okay. and more people know that, then hopefully they will pressure the government more to, to, mm. to repeal the data as is. Good point, thank you. And finally, Campbell, to you. I would echo everything that's said, and I think it's a huge positive that uh, people are talking more about data. There is a data mindset. Who knows, who, who would have known that we'd be talking about R0 numbers and epidemiological curves and this sort of thing. I think it's it's a positive that, that people have this, this data literacy. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to a panel of data worms, so to speak. 
Um, thank you very much for your time today and for your insights. There are many more questions we could have got to, obviously uh, a big area and something that we can follow up on as well, especially when we look at possible collaboration between Indonesia and Australia. And as Petra, you mentioned, those people-to-people -people links, you just can't beat them. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today as well and for taking part in the conversation. Thank you very much for your questions. We have a quick survey for you to do if you can at the end of this. And also a reminder that we make all our webinars available online. They're available for replay at australiaindonesia.com. We have a podcast as well of each event. So if you can't watch something, you can definitely listen to it and we um, always try and write something about what we've discussed in these um, events. We do have another one coming up in two weeks time on Wednesday, August the 19th. It's called Reimagining the Supply Chain. And again, really looking forward to this. We're going to speak to Tani Hub, who are an ag food startup company that's seen some amazing uplift in what it's had to deliver during the coronavirus pandemic. And talk to one of our fellows, Professor Nyoman, who's president of the Indonesian Supply Chain and Logistics Institute. And they've been doing some surveys during COVID-19 to get a sense of some supply chain issues. Uh, we will also hopefully have a third panellist, which we will announce in the coming two weeks. Again, thank you for your time and uh, have a lovely rest of the day wherever you are. We'll see you again soon.